So, thank you for joining the Chaos Cast. We're glad you came. We hope you check out our sponsors. We hope you check out our website. And we hope you join our email subscription list. And we hope you leave a good review and hit that follow button, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell. And thank you for helping us with the show. Thank you for listening. Y'all have a good one. So thank you for joining the Chaos Cast. We're glad you came. We hope you check out our sponsors. We hope you check out our website and we hope you join our email subscription list and we hope you leave a good review and hit that follow button, hit that like button, hit that subscribe button, hit the notification bell and thank you for helping us with the show. Thank you for listening. Y'all have a good one. So welcome to the Chaos Cast. We are glad to have you here and today we're going to be starting out talking about uh, just um, a very sad incident, especially for, you know, the homesteading community, the the uh, natural grow community, you know, organic growing community. And um, we're going to kind of discuss why it's important to have these farms and probably some of the reasons he may have been, his farm may have been hit. Now, um, yeah, it, it's when, you, when you're a prepper, you can't just think about the food. You have to be thinking ahead about when the food runs out. That's that's kind of part of it. And I'm more of a preparedness enthusiast than uh, just a doomsday prepper. I'm, I'm more or less trying to be prepared for, um, you know, economic uh, unsta- instability, uh, inflate, you know, rapid inflation, uh, country, you know, society collapsing, co- the country destabilizing as far as government goes, because it has happened through the years. And we have to be mindful of that being an event. So. I want to show you real briefly just um, this one news story, and we're going to pull it up, and we're going to share it. There we go. And so you have this Oklahoma farm that was devastated. Um, they don't, they're not sure if they can get back on their feet to feed customers. Now, one of the things that is happening that's great is the community is coming around and buying what they do have left. But Russick Farms believes they were targeted and that some sort of plant poison was sprayed on their produce, killing nearly everything. The plants were left curled up with withered leaves, and most of the produce was days away from being in the hands of customers. They go on to say, we've got 1,700 tomato plants this year, hundreds of squash and zucchini, cucumbers, eggplants, you name it, we grow it here, and just about all of it has taken a hit, said Michael Rusick, the owner of the farm. So that's what his job is full-time, is to grow organic food. Now, a lot of you, if you're like me and my family, you you are focusing on, you know, buying more naturally sourced, um, organically grown food. Um, And some of it is you know, top grade organic food. If you get it from the right people in the right places, some of it is commercialized organic food. And that's a whole nother podcast for a whole nother time. But, you know, these farms are important, but they are putting a press now up on the industry to the point the industry is trying to commercialize organic growth, which is good in some ways, if it brings about the change that's needed. Uh, but, you know, all in all, this is a, a this is a part of a bigger problem. The corporations have controlled a lot of things. And I'm not going to say corporations are always a bad thing. 
But when they're running things like they are now, that's not always the best of things. Now, this this mode of corporate farming has caused a lot of problems in our world. It's caused a lot of soil erosion, the mass tilling of the soil, uh, the um, the the chemical fertilizers. Those things are different issues that are causing you know problems in our community uh and, and it's unseen problems because you don't face it at um you, you don't face it every day in your face you don't even know this is going uh happening so much sometimes because we go to the grocery store to get our food we don't realize what's happening how that food gets there to the point you have people that are animal rights activists that go to the store and buy chicken and and beef because they don't they, they source their killing out to other places um but yeah we've seen this big push to um to go towards the crichton proteins the crickets um now <laughs> right now uh nevada there's a city in nevada right now that's dealing with a mormon cricket infestation that's basically took over the whole town so that's pretty gross they're getting a little taste of of what is to come or what what people are pushing for now, the gates foundation is heavily pushing these uh, chitin proteins, this um, this synthetic meat, this um, you know uh, plant-based proteins, uh, a number of of big-time organizations this, that work especially with the UN and um, the WEF are big on these types of methods because they feel like well we can feed the whole world, but I don't feel like these these are the solutions. One thing, if you have an allergy towards shellfish, you can react to uh, the chitin proteins. And I've had to be very careful about this because I have a son that has shellfish allergies. So we have topsoil erosion that is happening across the world. And um, we're going to look at another article here. Let's see here. All right. Let's see. Yeah. Uh, so this is uh, from Time Magazine, and this is, What if the world's soil runs out? A broken food system is destroying the soil and fueling health crisis, as well as conflicts, warns Professor John Crawford of the University of Sydney. Um, let's see, it goes on to say, Some experts fear the world as it's at its current pace of consumption is running out of unusable topsoil. The World Economic Forum, in collaboration with Time, talked to University of Sydney Professor John Crawford on the uh, systemic implications soil erosion and degradation may have in the decades to come. So is soil really in danger of running out? Uh, now, the rough calculation of current rates of soil degradation suggests we have about 60 years of topsoil left. Some 40% of soil used for agriculture around the world is classed as either degraded or seriously degraded. The latter means that 70% of the topsoil, the layer allowing plants to grow, is gone because of various farming methods that strip the soil of carbon and make it less robust as well as weaker in nutrients. Soil is being lost at between 10 and 4 times the rate at which it can be naturally replenished. Even the well-maintained farming land in Europe, which may look idyllic, is being lost at unsustainable rates. So. What they're basically talking about is a form of desertification. Uh, the soil is becoming unusable. Usable. We're seeing dead zones. Um, 
and and the, and one place where we lost a lot of topsoil is the dust bowl um it was it was during the 1930s um they they there was this manifest destiny um thing going on in america you know there was settlement acts going on so people were put out into the prairie lands and you know pushed to you know make farms because they believed if they could get crops growing it, it would make it less arid but what actually happened is is that so there was a there was a certain process to, and we'll talk about that later that that created those grasslands and kept those grasslands you know you know working as a, a specific type of grassland ecosystem and when they began to till the soil and exposed it to the sun it began to kill you know microbiology that had been going for years it, it began to destroy the whole ecosystem because it worked for the first couple of years they had a lot of rain uh the soil was great but then they had a drought and the ensuing drought began to pick up that fine powdery dirt that was created created from all the tilling and the and the over uh i guess you'd say the foundering of the land they, they had just continually grown on this land and you had a lot of farmers that were first-time farmers inexperienced farmers that went out here and they contributed to this and this was one of the greatest natural disasters man-made natural disasters that america ever experienced and we lost a lot of hybridized seed um, I mean, we lost a lot of uh, hybridized seed. We lost a lot of heirloom seed, family seed that was passed on from family to family. And, and that's where the hybridized seeds were uh, brought into the picture. Um, you had um, the uh, one of the things when I was looking, looking into this when it was invented, and I already knew, but uh, said, you know, they were invented all the way back in the 1700s, I believe, maybe the 15 or 1600s. Uh, 1717 uh, is where the first, you know, notable account of this is. But it was mainly in the 1930s during the Depression. A lot of that was because of all the seed that people lost, and they would just pick up and leave and quit farming. Because it wasn't just the inexperienced farmers that it affected. It affected all of the farmers that were there, and it caused just a natural devastation. And that caused what we call uh, desertification. And so desertification is a type of land degradation in dry lands, like um, the grasslands were, the, the arid land, in which biological productivity is lost due to natural process or induced by human activity, whereby fertile areas become arid. It is the spread of arid areas caused by a variety of factors such as climate change and overexploitation of the soil as a result of human activity. Throughout geological history, the development of deserts has occurred naturally in recent times. The potential influences of human activity, improper land management, and de deforestation and, cl and climate change, which I believe climate change is more or less because of this man-made activity more than it is, um, you know, releasing too much carbon into the carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide into the air, carbon dioxide in there, whatever, said the wrong thing. Um, but it goes on uh, to talk about um, this uh, desertification process, and it gives us a map here. Um, the desertification vulnerability. Notice all this is the cold areas that you really don't have to worry about all that, which that right there is very surprising that it's, it's that cold. Um, but yeah, the very high areas are red. And so you see this in middle America where a lot of the Dust Bowl took place, the moderate high and very high areas are all in the middle part of america all the way down in mexico 
and then you kind of start re seeing the the human not vulnerable that can't be you know you, you couldn't do you couldn't hardly do anything to it to stop it you know down in south america the amazon uh rainforest i think this encompasses most of the amazon rainforest in different areas but south america is good uh europe is very good in a lot of areas uh africa is good right here in the middle and then you see asia uh china north south korea that they're they're pretty good a little strip up through here um most of uh your your uh polynesian uh islands here and then you got a small little part of uh africa australia here um i think um you got tasmania and um and then um i think that is um Lord help, I'd remember if I wasn't trying to, uh, wasn't trying to, but, um, New Zealand, I believe it is. So they're, they're good. They're good to go. <laughs> but the, these areas are around the Sahara. We're seeing all this desertification of farmland down in, uh, South Africa in certain areas. Um, now you do see it here in this area in South America, and then you see it all over in the Middle East and, and in these areas. And, so desertification is an issue. It's, it's they even believe that the Sahara Desert at one time was a highly, um, you know, it, it was it was highly populated. They had crops. There was something that changed uh, that devastated it and caused it to be this huge, um, th this huge um, desert. Now, one thing to note: right in this area, there is a place that uh, uh, people have found, and it's like a bunch of rings. And a lot of people have been hinting at that they believe this was the lost city of Atlantis and that's a theory but they've actually went out there and they've there's been people that done have done digs and they found the evidence that there was a sea going community so they believe there was something happened in this area and maybe possibly that there was you know maybe this was covered with water in certain areas it was it was a more uh humid place with more growth and something happened that caused a draining at some point, maybe there was a sea here and then it drained and or, or you know, it was, it, you know, it dried up over a certain amount of time because of a weather change. But that is what they say, what a lot of uh, studies have, have rendered. I've seen that you can go look this uh, up. I'm scratching my nose. You can go and look this up online about this this place. And um, and it's a fascinating looking place. It's huge. And they found the only reason they found it was because of satellites. Um, you know, they were able to, to use satellites and they found this place. And um, the, so that is something of note to think about now. You know, that's just getting off on a tangent and having a little fun here. But desertification is a real thing. The Dust Bowl was a form of that. They, they believe it was a part of man-made causes um and some of the things right now that are contributing to this desertification are the use of chemical fertilizers so chemical fertilizers have been around for you know i think since the 1800s um there they had and it started with superphosphate um and then you had uh, some others uh this was all pre-war you had different companies and they were coming out with things like ammonium sulfate nitro chalk um let's see ammonium phosphate later on and then ammonium sulfate um and they were using them in europe and then north north america began to start using them especially uh i think it, they started fooling around with it in the 1930s but then by world war ii they began to up 
production of um, of nitrogen, ammonium nitrate, because nitrogen is uh, nitrates used a lot in. I said nitrogen. Uh, the nitrate was used a lot in explosives, um, and so you had World War Two, and you had this massive uh, boom of factories getting things ready for the war. So when they got done, they had all these factories producing basically fertilizer. And so they um, they started marketing chemical fertilizers for crops instead of the manure that people for eons had used. Um, so these chemical fertilizers, they didn't realize when they were inventing them what they were going to do to the soil. Now, this is, again, it says with the start of World War II, there was a tremendous increase in nitrogen production, mainly because nitrogen is a principal ingredient in explosives. The government constructed 10 new plants to produce ammonium, uh, ammonia for munitions when the World War II began, all located in the interior of the country. Most were located near natural gas pipelines, so they could use the gas as raw material for nitrogen, uh, nitrogen production. By the end of the world, the plants, by the end of the world, <laughs> End of the world. By the end of the war, the plants were producing 730,000 tons of ammonia each year and had capacity to produce 1.6 million tons. So after World War II, the need to manufacture war munitions was replaced with the need to restore food supplies in Europe and the United States. So they'd already come up with a lot of uh, hybridized seeds. And um, this was mainly utilized um, around uh, the, the, the hybridized seeds were basically introduced to help reinvigorate the seeds in, um, in around the 1930s uh, because of all the loss during the Dust Bowl. And then World War II comes along, you got the perfect storm, you got hybridized seeds that highly react to nitrogen, and then you have these uh, chemical fertilizers. So we begin the process of over farming with row crops. We begin to draw too much nutrients out of the, the natural bio uh, chemical nutrients that is in the soil already out as we grow and replace it with these chemical fertilizers and these things devastate our soil, they oxidize our soil, they begin to create dead zones, they begin to help aid in desertification in some areas of the world, all while we were trying to fix the problem. Uh, and, and there's been some crazy things that have happened because of these uh, problems that we've had. And um, Alan Savory, now I watched a TED Talk of his a number of years ago. And Alan Savory has some very good points to make. But he tells the story of kind of what got him into holistic management. So I'm going to start on 54 seconds in of our rising population, rising towards 10 billion people. Let's go back. Facing that reality with the full belief that we can solve our problems with technology, and that's very understandable. Now, this perfect storm that we are facing is the result of our rising population, rising towards 10 billion people, land that is turning to desert, and of course, climate change. I believe the deserts, land turning deserts, what's causing the climate change for real? We will only solve the problem of replacing fossil fuels with technology. But fossil fuels, carbon, coal, and gas, are by no means the only thing that is causing uh, climate change. So I'm going to pause it there and move ahead. Uh, 126. 
Uh, I may be on it right now. Okay, we're already Education there. is a fancy word for land that is turning to desert. And this happens only when we create too much bare ground. There's no other cause. And I intend to focus on most of the world's land. That is you can see, this is what happened in the Dust Bowl era. And it's what's happening around the world. for you a very simple message that offers more hope than you can imagine. We have environments where humidity is guaranteed throughout the earth. On those, it is almost impossible to create vast areas of bare ground, no matter what you do. Nature covers it up so quickly. And we have environments where we have months of humidity followed by months of dryness. Now he's real monotone, but he brings out interesting things. Fortunately, with space technology now, we can look at it from space. And when we do again, you're seeing the same things we've seen on that map. Fairly well. Generally, what you see some of this is natural. And what you see in brown is, and these are by far the greatest areas of the earth. About two thirds, I would guess, of the world is desertifying. I took this picture in the Tihama Desert while 25 millimeters, that's an inch of rain, was falling. Think of it in terms of drums of water, each containing 200 liters. Over 1,000 drums of water fell on every hectare of that land that day. The next day, the land looked like this. Where had that water gone? Some of it ran off as flooding, but most of the water that soaked into the soil simply evaporated out again exactly as it does in your garden if you leave the soil uncovered now because the fate of water and now that say this makes perfect sense now there's a lot of different things to think about here there are people that plant cover crops to keep the sun off the ground to help keep the soil moist i utilize hay and wood chips and different things to cover ground to help keep from keep the weeds from growing first off but to help keep the soil moist and and what he goes into here in a second we're going to go to uh 856 because i don't want to get no copyrights for um playing too much of his video i can do responses legally from what i understand i hope i can find it all right what we had failed to understand was that the seasonal humidity environments of the world, the soil and the vegetation developed with very large numbers of grazing animals. And that these grazing animals developed with ferocious pack hunting predators. Now the main defense against pack hunting predators is- He kind of explains his whole point here. Larger the herd, the safer the individuals. Now, large herds dung and urinate all over their own food, and they have to keep moving. And it was that movement that prevented the overgrazing of plants, while the periodic trampling ensured good cover of the soil, as we see where a herd has passed. This picture is a typical seasonal grassland. It has just come through four months of rain and it's now going into eight months of dry season. And watch the change as it goes into this long dry season. Now, all of that grass you see above ground has to decay biologically 
before the next growing season. And if it doesn't, the grassland and the soil begin to die. Now, if it does not decay biologically, it shifts to oxidation, which is a very slow process, and this smothers and kills grasses, leading to a shift to woody vegetation and bare soil climate change. We cannot burn it without causing desertification and climate change. What are we going to do? He gives you a good idea of what to do here. The ancient Egyptians understood that they could use sound. Skip that ad. There is only one option. There's only one option. I repeat to you, only one option left to climatologists and scientists, and that is to do the unthinkable and to use livestock bunched and moving as a proxy for former herds and predators and mimic nature. Uh, so at one part, I believe we've done past that, he talks about one of the sad things he had to do because of this false knowledge uh, that they had that more animals, the, the, the more desertification. So that really makes no sense because you had massive amounts of animals that were left unchecked, you know, mainly only by animal predators in some areas of the world. And, and they done great. I mean, the herds of bison were huge in America. And that's, according to what he's saying, that was what caused that very delicate, balanced ecosystem of the grasslands in this arid part of the world. Also, it's what caused it in Africa and certain other areas. These massive herds stomping the grass down, taking a dump, getting chased, you know, having to move, and when they, because they couldn't eat what they stomped down and pooped on anymore. And if you don't believe that, you could have took a look at our goats plenty of times. They wouldn't eat the hay that they pulled out and stomped down anymore. But anyways, they would move, and, and that would basically fertilize and cover that soil and allow it to keep moisture. Um, but what, but he, he's come up with a solution. Now, you see these animal rights activists that don't like... Um, they don't like homesteaders. Um, you see people like Justin Rhodes and different ones that have um, that they, they have local law enforcement called and they file false allegations against these homesteaders on YouTube a lot of times. And to the point, Justin Rhodes has developed a great, and if you don't know who he is, look him up on YouTube. He's got a lot of great homesteading content. That's what he does, you know, for a living now. And he, he grows all his own food. But anyways, uh, he has a great relationship with the police because of these animal rights activists that don't want him to, you know, to farm in a sustainable way because he's butchering his own animals instead of hiring it out to mass processing centers. Okay, uh, which most of the world of America is doing right now, and even some animal rights activists that still eat meat. Um, and then there is the animal exploitation just to grow crops. So we don't even going to get in, even get into that. But the solution he's given is what they're fighting against us in America. The The problem that, that we have is the corporations and the corporations are trying anything and everything to please these people that they think are going to boycott them, these rights activist groups. And PETA and a number of these are some of the people because you keep seeing these vegan products come out. And I'm going to tell you, that's a load of garbage because I'm going to guarantee you in some way, vegans claim to not want to do any kind of exploitation of animals. Okay. 
That's garbage because when you really know what's going on, I mean, Pierce Morgan brought up some good points. <laughs> um, they brought up some good points on on uh, Yellowstone, if you ever watched that, um, about the planning process and, and, and the animals that die in that process. And so that's their solution to their problem. We don't want to see these animals die, but his problem would actually be cool with these people because you would have you would be able to have these animals in happy environments and they would be contributing to the, um, the, the, the health of the soil for natural growing. You know, we got so many chemicals and so much garbage and, and stuff in our food because it's so highly processed. And again, World War II era was when a lot of this was happening as America was industrializing. That's when this was happening. You have people leaving farms, going to jobs. They needed food that was, you know, semi-healthy you know, because they couldn't farm their own. They were working jobs and they need, they need a good, healthy, quick food. And so these, it started out in a good manner, but it's, it's got to the point where everybody's took advantage of that convenience. And so then the corporations, as, as people moved over to the grocery store, the corporations took over the farms and their chemical exploitations of the soil and hybridized seed has, has, has depleted tons of our soil. And we see our, um, agriculture sectors fighting to keep the biodiversity up in our soil. Now, a lot of the people, things that people freak out about them tilling under crops, that's not as much the government trying to destroy the food supply chain. They're desperately trying to get that biomaterial back into the soil so that they're, get, they're, they're putting some nutrients back into the soil. They want the farmers to do these things. And then there's times farmers let fields just they don't grow on them for a couple of years. They let them go fallow. You see this especially now in the natural growing community. Uh, these people they're starting these homesteads and try and supply their local networks. Now, um, the, the solution is the th the solution to the problem is the problem to their solution that's not working. You know, you, when, that's what happens when you turn lose corporations and governments with your life your sustenance and your income. Um, they come up with these mass solutions that destroy some part of your life. There's a reason for all these eons. We have put up food in the winter. We've grown in the summer. We've, we've, um, we've grown crops. We've, we've foraged, we've hunted, we've raised animals. Uh, th there's reasons why we did what we did because when you do a homestead in the right way, it works with the ecosystem. A whole ecosystem forms around it. You know, you have the animals that the, the, you have the rodents and you have the infestations, but then you have the animals that come in to the predators and the other bugs that come in to take care of those problems. And then, you know, you have this ecosystem that depends on those homesteads. And this has been going on for eons. You know, I believe this is the way God intended it. And this, this is what he's offering. He's just offering a different way of doing it than what we've done for this. You know, it's, it's an infinitesimal amount of time that we've been doing hybrid seeds, row crops and, and mass factory farming and chemical fertilizers. Um, and there's a lot of solutions right there on your door. You can make your own soil. Uh, I've made soil from the defecation from my rabbits and my chickens. Um, and, and the one clue that I have that that's really good soil is, is, is that the worms like it. And so I have made a raised bed out of this soil. And I've been making this soil for a while. I've been a lot in it. I've, and I've, had, I've got a lot of rabbit poop and 
chicken poop and some pig poop left from the pigsty that I put in there along with regular dirt and dirt that would grow to a certain degree. It just, I had bumper crops of stuff. The same dirt that I was planting in that I put in this raised bed mixed with all this other soil that I made where it wouldn't yield tomatoes. Now I'm getting tomatoes, you know, so, and I've done this naturally without chemical fertilizers. Um, and so I'm going to be in a process of swapping over to making my own soil because it may come down to that as a, um, as a homesteader, as a person who wants healthy food for your kids. Uh, it may come down to you making your own soil, but you know, he goes into all this about how he killed so many thousands of elephants off of these reserves so that the land would have enough animals, but yet, uh, so it'd have enough food for that, for a certain amount of animals, but yet it continued to desertify. And he's seen the same thing in America happening. And that was after the buffalo were killed off the massive herds of buffalo. So then he tries this method and realizes he ha he did not have to kill all of those elephants. So sometimes it is you need to question your government because the decision they're making now is not the best decision, especially going forward. And it, excuse me, causes more harm than good. Now, there's another story I want to look at. And now this one is of uh, a project that David Bamberger started in Texas uh, 50 years ago. Now, we'll start with the beginning right here. And it just kind of shows you this. It starts with this pristine area uh, of what used to be desert, scrubland. Fifty years ago, you couldn't hardly walk through this place. When you look at how lush of an oasis this is, in arid country. Nobody. Let's see. The one fifty, one twenty six. That's what we're looking for. <laughs> Your bug spray should take out bugs. My gosh. Trying to do a podcast here, y'all putting on these dad blame commercials. But anyways, it's gonna show where he worked for Church's Chicken. And um he ended up deciding to invest in this property. Man life. <laughs> Try to do it. I might have to edit this out. But anyways. I teamed up with a young man, Bill Church, and it was Church's Fried Chicken. And we built that company up to over 1,600 stores, and we sold them. And with that capital, I was able to come here and begin my work on Sela. So, again, this was desert. I believe he shows. The objective was to take the worst piece of land I could possibly find in the hill country of Texas. And began a process of restoration that would change it back to be one of the best, and that is happening right here. By habitat restoration, by working with Mother Nature instead of against her, and that's what we're all about. Forty-six years ago. So he shows how he, what he used to get it to this point. Seven water wells. We're over here to four eighteen. Five hundred foot deep. Not a one produced any water. The top 125 foot of these hills looks like this. So this is the rock he started with. Limestone. He had to get water into those reservoirs. Said Ben Berger, 
one place up here on the top, my bit dropped 40 foot. So you've got a cavern under there. It's like an auditorium. The only thing about it was, 46 years ago, it had no water in it. It was dry. And so he shows how he fills that reservoir. The hill country is just covered with woody species. Primarily, it's uh, cedar. We took out a great portion of it here on the ranch. We were just covered with it. We had no grass. When we took out the cedars and spread native grass seeds, and it began to grow, the rainfall then percolated into the earth because of the root system of grass going down. Water percolates and it fills up your aquifer until the aquifer is full. And when it's full, it has to come out somewhere, and they call that a spring. That spring supplied water for all the nature's critters, plus for all the families that live here, and even sends water downstream to the city of Austin. What is the cost? Our governments and governments all around the world. All right, so that gives you a good idea of just the situations that we've created in some ways, but we can rectify with these simple solutions. Um, this this guy goes on to talk about how within two years they seen their first spring. Then uh, I think another two or three years they started seeing more. Uh, like they had a water level, a water table there. Then they had ponds. Uh, water began to fill. And one of the things that he talks about is this huge cavern. Now one of the things in my area we live in a very humid, you know, green area, you know, Appalachia, and we have tons of sinkholes and and. Usually, you know, if you're out in the woods and you need water, a good old water seat, you find one, there's going to be some water for drinking. You know, you might want to treat it. I'm going to tell you, don't drink that without treating it. You can do it, do so at your own risk. So you heard it here. And well, you can't say I told you to drink water from rocks. But anyways, <laughs> we have a lot of sinkholes. We have a lot of caverns. So the water, there's places for the water to go. But what he's talking about is the grass. So when they till up all of that grass out in American grasslands and what was an arid property, an arid land, um, they they uncovered the soil. And then it didn't take but a, a good drought to come through and cause one of the greatest natural disasters that America has ever seen. The greatest natural man-made disasters America has ever seen. And uh, it caused this mass desertification. So this man, um, Dan, uh, David uh, Bamberger, his idea of grass coupled with Alan Savory's idea of holistic management, and that can be used to restore land. Now, I have, if you go back in some of my videos that you see on one of the platforms, I have a, a, day, a day where I go out to target practice and shoot on the range, and I'm in what's called a chirp pit in Alabama. And there's these pits because they use this for foundations. They use it for the foundations of roads, houses. Uh, they put these chirp pads up for people to build houses on. And they have these chirp pits where, you know, in some areas they were naturally exposed. Well, then they went in and excavated it. And they get into the part where they excavate actual areas that weren't exposed to forest and trees. And um, we still see this day, you know, private you know, contractors will buy this land just to haul, the, to dig the chariot up. They'll sell the topsoil to a person to make garden beds or whatnot around their house. They, they'll, and what they do, they'll go, they'll even sell what they pull off somebody else's property. You'll pay them to take it away. They'll haul it off and sell it. Uh, they make double the money for 
you know, just that little bit of work. But then they'll buy land when they get in that, you know, mode of selling at certain times of year, and they'll just strip it clean down to the church. And, and it kind of devastates these areas. It causes a lot of what you've seen uh, Alan Savory talking about, where the water falls and what don't wash away, it just gathers in these pools. And most of the time, uh, it will evaporate. You, sometimes we used to have some puddles that would stay around during a lot of rain and you'd have a lot of tadpoles and we'd wait out there in this red clay mud and we would, you know, collect tadpoles and put them in the fish tank at the house just goofing off. And we had a lot of little frogs that come up out of that too. <laughs> Mom and daddy had to make some quick burning tadpoles home. But anyways, um, one of the things I've seen at this local one, this it's basically a defunct neighborhood shooting range. You know, you got high walls, you're risking it. A bullet going anywhere except, you know, the target or the wall behind it, wall of rocks, wall of chert rock and chert mud. So we go up there and we shoot. But one of the things, you know, over the years since they they first built the new Highway 72 out here, they they, they that was where most of the chert come from was this chert pit near my road. So this main interstate they was creating, well, they were destroying something else for those materials. But I've seen this natural comeback, and it always starts with uh, grass. It'll start with some pine trees, and the pine trees and the grass will begin to, um, you know, create, you know, soil. It'll begin to fall. It'll gray. It'll it'll decay. Begin to get into the soil, and then you'll see other plants come in. You'll see the weeds that come into waste areas, um, which a lot of them are medicinal. A lot of them are edible. So hey, if you got an old chert pit near your house, there's tons of food growing there. I've seen just in that one place. I've seen cattails. Um, I've seen um, I've seen plantain, burdock, um, Queen Anne lace, elderberries, blackberries, strawberries. Um, then there's the tapos. You can eat them if you get too hungry. Crickets. <laughs> Uh, pine tree, you know, you need pine, uh, the cane brim out of a pine tree. So, but I'm not counseling you to go forage and you get some good advice and an experienced person to go with you before you do that. That is a disclaimer. Yes. Cause I don't want you getting over eating poison hemlock instead of, um, Queensland lace and, and killing yourself. Cause I almost had a friend die from that confusion in his infancy of his forage learning experience. Yeah. He, he eats something dangerous, but luckily his wife is a nurse kept him from dying but i've slowly watched this this it's a slow process on its own now imagine if um we turned a bunch of goats loose now there i've heard instances of people the only land they could buy to start their homestead and i read this in mother earth news this was an article a couple months back where these people bought this barren arid type of land like a church pit basically and they turned their goats loose and while little grass was growing, the goats began to eat. They began to defecate. And then they would plant more grass seed. They would move their goats around until soon they had some of the best land around. And then they, their neighbors started wanting them to bring their goats and pin them up and move them around in their areas that were dry too. And so they created this lush farmland. Now, when you look at Joel Salatan, this guy who has started this, um, you know, he didn't really start it, but he's, he's kind of one of the big, progenitors of the current movement he started you know with pastor poultry um book that i read and you know he talked about moving the chickens around moving the pigs around moving the cattle around and and he started with this land that was it was basically just dust a dusty piece of land and the, and before you know it it's one of the best pieces of prime pieces of land that there is because of how he has moved the animals around and kept the land fertile, 
with the defecation and biomatter from the uh, from the animals. You see the same thing in the biggest little farm movie documentary of this couple that created a similar uh, holistic farming method in um, California. They took some arid just beat down land and they turned it into an oasis and these cover crops they planted the soil that they had created with the defecation from their animals and their worm factory that they built uh, to, to capture worm castings and they would basically create this worm worm crap juice they'd spray on it in the beginning but basically they created this oasis and where other farms were having topsoil washed away uh, losing crops their ground absorbed that water and it flourished in the drier times um and, and that's where you get i get this idea to tell you about the the farming ecosystem because it documents their whole walk through this system of dealing with you know bugs coyotes uh groundhogs and then the the coyotes are killing the groundhogs and everything that they thought that they needed to get rid of ended up being a solution to a problem until finally they learned how to mitigate it all to make this you know, organic growing farm. Now, I'll tell you right off the bat, don't go to killing all your animal and pests off that are around your homestead. I did that one time. I, I killed a bunch of snakes uh, that came in, started eating up the eggs. Little did I know there's a reason those snakes were coming in. A lot of times God has put into nature something that'll solve your problem. <laughs> so those snakes were there to solve the problem, but I killed them because they were eating my eggs. I could have I could afford to pay the snakes to hang around because a few months later, there was a mother rat that took up residence um, in in our coop in a certain area. I, I didn't realize it until she had done had a nest of babies. So I had to destroy that nest and she ran off, you know, didn't have no way to stop her. Then a couple months later, all of a sudden, I, I would almost say it's the same one or one of her babies. We have another one in almost the exact same area. We run it out, we uncover it, find it, we run it out. I think the problem's gone. And then we've noticed there's an inf you know some mice or rats, something's getting into feed in the garage. So we start putting out poison. That problem gets solved. And then out of nowhere, we come back from vacation, seven day vacation. You know, when people are not around, well, then that's when you know these these rodents will really show themselves. There's not a lot of human activity. My mother-in-law was supposed to be coming and feeding them, but she wasn't around the house. Um, and so she was just there that one time a day and then they leave. So then I come home one night from work right after this first little bit. And the boys said they had seen a mouse and I was going to put out poison. I come home from work and I see little beady eyes and there's baby rats climbing up and down in my uh, chicken coop. And then they're going over into the rabbit cages and drinking out of the water. So needless to say, I had an infestation because I took care, I, I killed off one of my, one of my supposed problems that was a solution to it. So that's what we do as humans. We, we, sometimes we don't learn from our mistakes. I wouldn't kill a snake in my yard to save my life. Or, you know, I would to save my life. But I wouldn't kill a snake, you know, if you paid me right now. Because that's nature's way. That's God's, you know engineered way to mitigate those rats and so if i got a snake around it's gonna keep away the rats one of the things that did happen that was very interesting every feral stray cat for probably 20 miles decided to take up residence in the woods behind my house some of them have turned to pets now and more or less are barn cats and still you'll see them out there sitting on the post but they 
began to take care of what I wasn't seeing. Because, you know, when you don't see it, there's always some more. So, necessarily, we got rid of that infestation. You know, we had to turn up coops. We had to put out poison. And then those cats took care of some business. We lost some baby chicks because of it. But I learned a hard lesson there. There's a reason nature works the way it does. There's a reason their forefathers farmed the way they did, whether they knew it or not, because they were working with the nature around them. You know, that is a very... A, a very big threat is so, somebody coming in and taking your food source away. If you are a homesteader, you know, they're going to, they're going to stop you from growing that garden. You may have to move and you have to start all over again. You, um, or, or maybe there is like what we've seen in Ohio, maybe a devastating accident that releases some kind of chemical into your soil. Maybe somebody poisons your property and you lose all your heirloom seed that you had from the year before, like this man did. And, and you wonder what is your solution. And right now, ReadyWise has this solution. This is something they sent us. And, and this is something I specifically asked about to rep because I, I believe in these heirloom seed vaults. Uh, this is Wise Company, formerly Wise Company. It's ReadyWise now, but it is the seed vault. There's 39 varieties of heirloom seeds, uh, 450 of these seeds. And then there's 10 year shelf life. This is made in America. You can use code chaos 10 to save 10% right now, uh, on non-sale items at readywise.com and, uh, readywiseoutdoors.com. And they have this wise seed vault. So what that will be for you put that up for an emergency, just like you have your life insurance, your health insurance, you have uh, your car, your automobile insurance. Um, you have all these different insurances. You need to have your food insurance. And as you know, as I do with my preparedness, I have that initial stock of food in case there's emergencies or there's a like, like we're seeing now a mass fluctuation in the market. But also, I have my food growing methods. I have my chickens. I have my rabbits. I have my gardening that I do. Um, then I have friends that do certain types of gardening and we get, we can get access to that. I have my fruit trees, but what if I lost all that? Well, then in steps, I've got to start all over again. God willing, I'll figure something out, but I have this seed vault to restart over with, kind of like with the dust bowl. If, if some of those uh, families had had these something or some kind of, you know, coffee can full of old seeds put up, uh, for an emergency, they would, and some of them likely did, they would be able to start over again, at least have a house garden on a small plot of land where, where they went to rent or work or whatnot. And then they could just keep the seed growing until they were able to purchase more land and start another farm. But we didn't have that. We had to go to the uh, hybridized methods of seeds uh, to help to help grow more food for war and for, you know, that type of devastation and loss of agriculture. You know, there's been a lot of things that happened in the world uh, over the years. And I can't tell you how to be prepared for everything in your own self. I always tell people to be um, to uh, how to be prepared, but never scared. Always prepared, but never scared. But it doesn't involve any preparation. Now, you can get your seed vault, and that's great. And that give you some level of preparation here in this life. And I believe the Lord wants us to do our little part for what we're doing here on earth. But when all else fails, Jesus Christ is my greatest preparation. 
And it's not something scientific that's convinced me. It's not something historic that's convinced me. It's simply a, a, just a consistent relationship with Christ that has given me a confidence in him. See, I've literally, you're talking to a person you can't convince otherwise, not because of some great, you know, scientific evidence or, or, or theorem or, or anything of that nature. It's the the statistical impossibility of coincidences that can no longer be called coincidences that I have seen needs met and been taken care of and made my way in life to the point I am now. Even this podcast and the and the videos and and followings that I've seen that has nothing to do with my any talent I have that that hasn't been ordained by God and given to me through uh, His Son Christ as I continue in this relationship with Him. And so. I've seen a lot of things that God's done. And so if you're that person, maybe you felt this in your heart and you felt this need for just some higher help and maybe you don't want it. Well, that's fine. So maybe you see this need for some higher help. Well, I invite you to come to know Christ as your savior. Christ has been my savior in many situations as well as the savior of my soul. And in these times, sometimes it helps to have somebody to lean on. So I'm going to say a prayer with you. I'm going to pray over you. And I'm going to pray that you, if you if you want to come to know Christ, that you begin to come to know him as your personal Savior. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you touch those that are under the sound of my voice, whether they're watching this on a YouTube or Facebook video, or they're listening to it on the podcast or watching the podcast. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you just work in their lives and, and help them to confess their sins to you, their inability to do this on their own and their need for you in their life, Lord, so that they can be saved and that they can have your help through the troubles that they face, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray and they all said, amen. I hope that finds you today, that message finds you today uh, in the right time and right period and that God brings that to uh, just to light in your life, you know, that, that you have help in these troubled times. So we thank you for coming and joining us for the Cast. Y'all have a good one. We'll see y'all later. So thank you for joining the Chaos Cast. We're glad you came. We hope you check out our sponsors. We hope you check out our website. And we hope you join our email subscription list. And we hope you leave a good review and hit that follow button. Hit that like button. Hit that subscribe button. Hit the notification bell. And thank you for helping us with the show. Thank you for listening. Y'all have a good one.